A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of England. Episode 89, The Fall of Gaveston and the Great Famine. Today, let's find out about Piers Gaveston. When he sailed on the 3rd of November from the shores of England, was that really it? But once we've answered that question, I'm going to change tack a bit and talk about the changing economic climate. We've got used to a sunny economic background, gently rising prices, growing population growing urban centres, all hoopy doody. Well, nothing lasts forever. But let's deal with Pierce first, shall we? Well, I'm sure it won't shock you to know that Edward had absolutely no intention whatsoever of allowing Gaveston to be exiled permanently. Which is why he'd not made any provision for his pal's financial wherewithal. Nope, Edward and Gaveston had a plan. It wasn't a good plan, but they lovingly thought of it as a plan. Actually, it really barely qualified as a plan, but hey, in January, Gaveston appeared back in England in the north, at a place called Knaresborough, which is about 20 miles northwest of York. Edward also just happened to be passing the place at the time, presumably nonchalantly whistling tunelessly with his hands in his pockets. Oh, hello, Piers, fancy meeting you here. So, why Knaresborough? I hear you ask. Well, being close to York was handy, since Piers's wife Margaret was due to produce his daughter Amy. Edward had meanwhile renounced the ordinances, and now declared that Gaveston was once again Earl of Cornwall. Sadly, that appears to be the full extent of the planning. He does seem to have spent some mental energy thinking that he could probably do with a bit more support. So, who did he come up with? Why no other than Walter Langton, ex-treasurer, and now reinstated as treasurer? A great way to improve your popularity. Langton was a clever and experienced man, no doubt, but appointing the one man who could compete with Gaveston for the most hated award was really no way to build your approval rating. There is a real possibility that Edward just didn't understand how dangerous all of this was, that somehow surely no one could be that nasty to him. After all, didn't they know who he was? He wrote a note to the Archbishop of Canterbury, wandered around the north of England, threw a party for Gaveston and Margaret, really as mad as a box of cheese. Meanwhile, the Archbishop of Canterbury promptly excommunicated Gaveston. Lancaster, Pembroke, Hereford, Arundel and Warwick took an oath together to act against Gaveston and then all the earls sort of split the country out between them like creating territories for a sales team. The ones with the more delicate feelings such as Gloucester were given the south to look after where he was unlikely to meet the king. It was Pembroke and Surrey or Valence and Warren if you like who were given the job of capturing Gaveston. Apropos of nothing, here we have the descendants of two families we've been talking about in one case for 250 years, because Pembroke, he's the descendant of the Lusignan, 
and Surrey, he's the descendant of the same Warren who came over with Billy the Conk. Anyway, at the start of April, still up in York, Edward gave Gaveston Scarborough Castle. I think the idea was that it could be resupplied by sea, or he could escape that way, but rather touchingly, Edward gave Gaveston strict instructions that he was not allowed to surrender the castle to anyone, not even to the king if he was captured, and ordered him to give up. With a combination of pathos, melodrama and lameness, maybe Edward was essentially envisaging a heroic act of self-sacrifice in front of the walls of Scarborough, the brave king dying to save his friend. Anyway, then they headed for the Scottish border. There's a vague possibility that maybe they were trying to stitch up a deal with Bruce, but in May, pursuit finally began to catch up with them. Lancaster entered Newcastle and Edward, Gaveston and Isabella, who was by now pregnant, fled, and left Gaveston at Scarborough, while Edward and Isabella went to York. Gaveston was now completely isolated. Pembroke and Surrey besieged Scarborough. Lancaster sat with his army between York and Scarborough. Within a few days, Gaveston had surrendered. The deal was that they'd all go to York and discuss the terms, whatever they were, with the king. If Gaveston agreed with the terms, well, that was fine. If he didn't, Pembroke would return him to Scarborough unharmed and they'd carry on with the sieging. Pembroke swore an oath that he would keep Gaveston unharmed, even swearing to forfeit his lands. And so we sweep unstoppably forward. Edward summoned a parliament to discuss all of this. Pembroke took Gaveston down south, heading for Gaveston's castle at Wallingford. On the way, they reached the village of Deddington. And in the best traditions of farce, Pembroke appears to have genuinely decided that now was a good time to nip off and see his wife at a manor 20 miles away. Of course, silly not to. Meanwhile, the Earl of Warwick had heard they were close and came to pay a visit. Here's what happened next from the record of an eyewitness. Coming to the village, he, i.e. Warwick and his men, entered the gate of the courtyard and surrounded the chamber. Then the earl called out in a loud voice, Arise, traitor, thou art taken. And Piers, putting on his clothes, comes down from the chamber. Blaring trumpets, yelling people and savage shouting followed Piers. Now Piers has laid aside his belt of knighthood. He travels to Warwick like a thief and a traitor, and coming there, he is thrown into prison. Pembroke, meanwhile, was probably playing boggle with his wife. There's much debate about whether Pembroke simply boobed or was in fact in cahoots with Warwick and removed himself conveniently. But I think the balance of probability, given his later behaviour, is that he just had the stupidity to trust his fellow conspirators. This is not a mistake he will make again. Shamed by his breach of honour, he remained a faithful supporter of Edward until his death, as indeed did Surrey. Gaveston was now in the hands of a hard-faced murderer in the form of the Earl of Warwick, Guy Beecham, at his pied-à-terre, Warwick Castle. Within a few days, a few more hard-faced killers arrived in the form of the Earls of Lancaster and Hereford. One wonders if Gaveston continued to call Lancaster the Churl and Beecham the Black Dog of Arden. A sort of show trial may have been rigged up with a couple of judges and from there he was taken to a place called Blacklow Hill, which hillwise is more low than black. But Lancaster handed Gaveston 
over to two Welshmen. One of them ran him through the body, and the other cut off his head. The earls contemptuously left the bits lying there, and went off home for tea. After they'd left, the Dominicans came, gathered up the body, sewed the head back on, but although they took it back to their house at Oxford, they didn't dare give it a decent burial because he was an excommunicate. Eventually, the body would end up at the Dominican Priory at Edward's place in King's Langley, where it would finally be buried. The whole thing's pretty brutal, and no one comes out of it well. It's impossible to separate them all. Edward, for his absolute lunacy. Gaveston, for his arrogance on a heroic scale. And the Earls, for their brutal murder. Though I have to say, they had tried to let the bloke live, and he kept coming back. But a plague on all their houses. Edward does have a rather offhand comment attributed to him, which sounds most out of character. There was no doubt that he was gutted. And there would be no peace until his murderer was dead, and in Edward's mind that meant Thomas of Lancaster. But we're going to leave murder and mayhem and move to the calmer waters of economic history. For a long time now, we've had a really lovely story to tell. The friendly climate of the medieval warm period, a story of new towns, a growing population and economy. But in 1315, a monk in Malmesbury wrote, The hand of God seems to be raised against us. For in the past year there was such plentiful rain that men could scarcely harvest the corn or bring it safely to the barn. In the present year worse has happened. For the floods of rain have rotted almost all the seed, and in many places the hay lay so long under water that it could be neither mown nor gathered. Sheep generally died, and other animals were killed by a sudden plague. We've not had to cope with this sort of stuff for a long, long time, and worse, this was to prove more than one bad year, but the beginning of a disruption to the economy that would continue throughout the 14th century. In fact, there had been signs for some time, such as falling yields, but then in 1314 there was a very poor harvest, and the weather changed big time. Of course, it's impossible to say that that medieval warm period stopped on 23rd of June 1315 or whatever, but it is reasonable to say that during the 14th century the climate had taken a definite turn for the worse until at some point we'll arrive at the Little Ice Age of the early modern era. So through the 14th century temperatures cooled, winters were longer, summers cooler and wetter, if summers in England could be cooler and wetter. The economic trouble and poor harvests were not confined to England though, they happened all over Europe. In 1316, the weather was also bad, with the same predictable impact on harvest, so that the same monk, with the same voice problem, had to write, After the Feast of Easter, the dearth of corn was much increased. Such scarcity has not been seen in our time in England, nor heard of, for a hundred years. Now you might remember some time ago that we talked about the beauty of crop yield data. So, back to the lovely crop yield data. By the mid-13th century, crop yields for corn were usually expected to be 4 to 1, but now these yields fell dramatically. So, on the Bishop of Winchester's estates, for example, the amount of corn they were able to harvest fell to 60% of expected levels in 1315 and 16. This meant that they were only harvesting twice as much as they planted, rather than four times as much as they planted. At Bolton Priory, it was even worse, down to 28% and 12% of expected levels, would you believe? 
Now you can imagine the impact this had on food prices. They rocketed. At some point, they apparently rose from five shillings a quarter to 40 shillings. This 800% inflation could just be an exaggeration, but certainly wheat on average cost 16 shillings, which at over 300% inflation is bad enough. Yields like this caused a spiral that was difficult to get out of. So, if you were starving, would you eat next year's seed corn or not? But of course, you'd had to try and survive and eat the stuff, but the consequences for the following year are of course obvious. And it wasn't just cereal production that was affected by the rain, so it affected salt production. High salt prices then made a mess of the supply of butter, cheese and preserved meat. Hay production was damaged, which affected the health of animals. So the poor harvests were accompanied by a disease in sheep, and in 1319 to 1321 there was an epidemic amongst cattle. The only animal prices that actually fell were for horses and oxen, and this was because farmers sold their animals to buy grain, with a predictable impact, of course, on their grain production the following year. In the face of these challenges, medieval government really didn't have the levers to help. They tried in the only ways they could, They tried to get grain moved in from some areas of the country that weren't so badly affected, such as Cornwall and East Anglia. They tried to regulate the price of corn, but doing the latter was to prove as futile as it ever would, since merchants just stopped stopped selling, and so the rules had to be removed. So, hate it or loathe it, there was just very little that could be done, and without the modern global economy and transportation, it wasn't possible to respond by, I don't know, flying in strawberries from Kenya or whatever. And indeed, this wasn't a problem restricted to England anyway. As I said, it was a problem that affected most of northern continental Europe. So where were you going to get extra grain from anyway? And so the people starved and the people died. It's clear again that the impact was not evenly spread throughout the country, but the overall impact was absolutely enormous. Mortality rates seem to vary between 10 and 15%, in some cases even higher. Deaths may have been from starvation, but it's also clear that disease such as typhus played a part. The result was that something like 500 to 750,000 people died in what became known as the Great Famine of 1315-16. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact... You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 
luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. We tend to forget about this famine and play it down, because, of course, it's relatively quickly followed by an event of unimaginable horror, the Black Death. The Great Famine is a pimple on the backside that is the Black Death. But it's a big and extremely painful pimple, and I think now is the time to drop the pimple metaphor. One of the problems was that the population was very vulnerable. We've seen that there were no mega improvements in technology to transform productivity, so there's the odd thing like the watermill and the use of horses and maybe possibly perhaps a change in field rotation, but nothing like the changes that enabled the Industrial Revolution, for example. So the growth in population had come at the margins, marginal land and assarts only just worth cultivating. It had produced labourers who had almost no land and had to make their way by brewing ale and other trades to make ends meet. So, when the bad harvests hit, there were enormous numbers of very vulnerable people who were already living on the breadline and needed very little to push them over the edge. So, there's something of a historical argument that goes on about this period. The argument relates to the Black Death. The question is whether or not the Black Death that hit us around 1350 was an extraordinary event that caused the world to change, or simply just one particularly dramatic part of something that was going on anyway. So on the one hand, some historians have represented the Black Death as flying in the face of a trend of a growing population and economy, that when it happened, it then caused this massive economic shock, quite against the run of play, and sent everything into reverse and changed the world effectively. Alternatively, others have it that things actually started to change well before the Black Death, with things going into reverse anyway since the start of the 14th century. And catastrophic and extraordinary as it was, the Black Death was more by way of another event in a series of unfortunate events. The answer to this question could be there in what happens after the Great Famine. So, if the Great Famine was a blip we'd expect to see the population recover after the shock of a few years of bad harvest. Yes, there'd temporarily be empty manners and plots, but the population would quickly take up the slack and growth would happen again. But if this doesn't happen, you've got to think there was a larger trend going on and that there are deeper economic problems. As with so many questions in medieval history, it's not simple. So in some manners, you do in fact see a pretty full recovery. Hales Owen in the West Midlands had 485 males in 1315. By the early 1320s, with the famine and the following years of dodgy harvests and high prices, the number of males had fallen to 412, a 15% fall. But by the late 1340s, just before the Black Death, the numbers were almost back to where they'd been before. So, that makes it look as though the Great Famine was just a blip. However, the balance of probability seems to be that despite the uneven results, the recovery was weak and extremely variable, that there may have been a population recovery in some areas, but the general trend was that despite the enormous shock of the Great Famine, population stagnated or even continued to fall in some cases. So an example of this is at Chatham Hall in Essex, where the fall just keeps on going. There were 70 people in 1320, which fell to 55 in 1346. At Great Waltham, 
we go from 320 in 1306 to only 200 in 1340. And we can see that the Great Famine was not just the blip of a couple of years. Despite better harvests in 1317, high prices and animal disease continued until 1322. There are also other changes that point towards this being a period of genuine change, because working and social practices begin to change as well, suggesting that at the time at least people recognised that something was going on and changing and they needed to adapt. So the last time we were on economic stuff, we talked about the famous high farming thing, where lords took land back into their own direct management through the domain, driven by rising prices, because they could make a better profit than they could from renting land out to peasant farmers, since changing the rent rate could take a long time. They'd look to impose increasingly professional management techniques on the whole farming thing. But that begins to go into reverse in the first half of the 14th century. After 1317, the general trend for prices is downwards. And meanwhile, costs were continuing to rise. There were fewer people chasing land, fewer people available to work the land, so they could demand more for their labour. And plus, of course, the Great Famine had reduced the number of consumers and therefore demand for produce. And all of this seems to be part of a longer-term trend of a fall in productivity and grain yields. The fall may have been accentuated for a few years by the bad weather, but that doesn't seem to have been the only reason. To all over the country came reports of land lying idle after the 1320s. In the increasingly frequent tax assessments that happened during Edward II's reign, there are growing complaints of sterile and infertile soil and of sheep disease. And on the Bishop of Winchester's estate, grain yield never recovers its 13th century high of 4.32 to 1. The closest it came was about 3.6 to 1. And there are plenty of other places where the same is true. A possible explanation for all of this is that the demands being put on the land went beyond the capacity of the available technology. England's soil had effectively just gone through a growth sprint, but now it had run out of breath and couldn't keep up the pace. All this meant that as their profits fell, lords began to cast around for other ways of managing their land, and they also began to lose confidence in the value of land as an investment, and they stopped buying it as an investment, particularly agricultural land though town property seems to continue to be more attractive. One sign of this is that large-scale land reclamation projects in areas such as the Fens largely come to an end at this time because there's just no demand for the extra land. So the era of high farming was beginning to come to an end well before King Death started to stalk the land. The landlords began to leave land in the hands of peasant farmers so that the peasant farmer took the risk. They'd sometimes give them a yield target or give them a quota and then leave it at that, leave them to get on with it. The change accelerated the change in the relationship between the lord and peasant. Because in the last century, there'd been conflicting pressures, really. On the one hand, lords were putting more of their land into domain and that suggested a good old traditional feudal relationship built on the basis of service dues. On the other hand, lords liked cash and recognised that peasants hated service, and when they did it, they did it reluctantly and badly. And so, in many cases, they'd allowed their peasants to pay cash instead of service. Well, now the direction is more and more one way towards cash, a cash rent. Falling prices, falling demand, these things also had an impact on the urban economy, of course. 
The foundation of towns virtually stopped altogether after 1300. Rents in many towns, including London, were falling. Wine imports started to fall, tin production fell after 1332, and the export of wool peaked in 1304-5 and then started to fall. The export of English cloth, never big by continental standards, collapsed completely between 1290 and 1320. There is a codicil to this, though. England was at something of a crossroads with its wool and cloth trade. The constant taxing of wool by kings desperate for cash pushed the export price up, but meant that locally produced cloth became relatively cheap. I.e., if you were a Brabant cloth producer, you'd have to pay a hefty price for your fine English wool, which, of course, was duly reflected in the price of the cloth you sold. If you were an English cloth producer, you didn't have to deal with an export tax, of course, as well as not having all those transportation costs. This meant that the local cloth production market continued to grow for English producers, and then, from the 1340s, they began to export. Over the next 200 years, the story is about a consistent move from primary to secondary producer, from raw material to manufactured goods. So the big picture, or at least the big idea, is that the economic world is changing between 1290 and 1350. When we get to the Black Death, we'll talk about all those theories about how it changes society and all that, but essentially, I think we would now argue that the Black Death accentuates an existing economic trend rather than creating a new one. So let's think a bit about why all this happened. Was it simply climate? When someone poses a question like that, you know darned well that a no will be forthcoming, and so it is here. OK, so the climate seems to have stopped being particularly benign, but it'll be quite a long time before we start talking about the Little Ice Age, 16th century probably. So climate plays a part, but it's not the whole story. So here are a few other contributors. Number one is money supply. In the later Middle Ages, there is a long-term decline in the amount of silver in circulation as production failed to keep up with the loss of silver by hoarding or making ornaments and that sort of thing. In the first half of the century, though, there was an inflow of silver into England because the King of France overvalued his gold coins and the Low Countries stopped minting in silver. But despite that, in the late 1330s, Edward III levied so much taxation that there became a serious shortage of bullion and none of that monetary instability helped the economic situation. War was another destabilising factor. OK, so war is hardly new in this era but there is a scale and intensity that is pretty new for England, or at, least which ha- or at least which hadn't been seen since the Viking invasions. Edward I's campaigns in Wales had established a new scale of armies, and although Edward III's armies would be of a different type, still war was a constant drain on resources, led by pretty constant demands for taxation. Of course, Some of that money found its way back into the system as the king spent it, so again, we certainly couldn't identify war and taxation as the whole story, but it probably is part of it. And finally, of course, there was pressure on the land from the rising population, unaccompanied by any radical new increases in technology. Improvements in management and technology that did exist helped mitigate some of the effects of the over-enthusiastic population growth, but yields and productivity still remained lower than their peak of the 13th century. So the super summary, everyone, is that Edward's troubled reign coincided with a troubled economy. Don't for the moment let Edward off the hook. That's not a reason he's such a loser, but it can't have helped him.
So, quite a short episode this week, though I have to say that I have made something of a resolution that I've let the length of each episode creep up, so that I'm doing almost 5,500 words every episode rather than 4,500, which is always my sort of aim. And once I go over 30 minutes, the whole thing seems to get harder to put together. So, I'll be aiming for 25 minutes from now on in. Next week, it's back to politics and the second stage of Edward's reign, when he does his level best to reign within the confines of the ordinances and be a good boy and get on with Thomas of Lancaster, while all the time wanting to do nothing less than mash him to a pulp and dance on the remains. So, what you might describe as a conflicted period. Meanwhile, thanks very much to a number of you for your generous donations to Matt, Steve, Lisa, Philip, someone with an S at the start of his name, Nancy, Bernd and David for his very generous donation, very much appreciated. Thanks to David for his continuing donation through Flatter, and thanks to everyone who comments on the website, iTunes, or joins the Facebook group. I know I say it every week, but really it makes a big difference. A recent one on iTunes made me feel quite tearful. And do come and join us on the History of England Facebook group, yay! So thanks to all of you for listening, good luck, and have a great week. (laughs) 